Hey, my name's Alex. If I haven't met you, um, I'm the pastor here at Saints Hill. Uh, I'm so glad that you guys are here. And what we're doing is we are beginning our church uh, by going through a series on our vision and values. Shout out to Anthony. Raise your hand real fast. Anthony, he made this graphic. You got to act like proudly. You made the graphic. It was all, it's awesome. Thank you for doing that. Um, And what we're doing is we're taking a look at the foundation of our church. What are we going towards the the elders? Yeah, Andoni, raise your hand real fast. Jim, Trout, you're here this week. Jim, raise your hand over there. Um, And then Jacob, we, we spent a lot of time, honestly, this past year really distilling down what should this church be about? And so um, that's kind of the series that we're going through. To do that, we have a little bit of a Bible survey tonight. So um, go ahead and flip in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be in Genesis 1 at the very beginning. And we're going to look at 1 verse 27. Genesis 1 verse 27. The narrative of how the world came to be, it says this in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Okay, if there was a vision statement over your life, what is it? You were designed to rule over creation. Flip in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 28, all the way in the New Testament. Uh, That's the first book in the New Testament, is the book of Matthew. And it really tells us the narrative, the documentary, if you will, about the life of Jesus. Matthew 28. And we're going to look at verse 18, a passage probably very familiar to most of you. It says this. Then Jesus came to them. Who were them? It's uh, the disciples. It says this. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. So notice something. Your vision statement over your life, it's to rule. And then we get to Jesus who um, tells his disciples that all authority has been given to him, therefore go. And there's this transfer of authority that we see right there. Now, flip over one last time to Ephesians in the New Testament. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians. I always remember it, go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, okay? Uh, It's helped me out so much. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and we get a little bit of the vision for the church. Here's what it says in chapter 4, verse 11. So Christ gave himself the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ." 
Uh, if you were here last week, you heard that the overarching vision of Saints Hill is to see heaven come. That heaven would become more of a reality on earth than it presently is. But how that actually happens is largely dependent upon what God is interested in doing in a particular time, in a particular space, and who, who, who he wants to do it with. The specific people that are in that time and in that space, what giftings they have, what passions they have. And, and so that being said, our mission as Saints Hill is this. Next slide. Our mission as a church is to equip the saints to know who they are in Christ, walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. If you're, if you're taking notes, snap a photo of this, write it down. That's our mission as a church. And so the plan for this evening is to work through each piece of our mission and what it means for you what it actually means for your life. What does it mean that the saints would be equipped at this church to know who they are in Christ, walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world? So, firstly, we as a church feel called to equip the saints. Um, I have a mentor named Gary Brashears. He's the uh, head of theology at Western Seminary in Portland. And uh, a, a couple years ago, I was in his, uh, we, we had like a, a cohort style class where once a month, myself and a bunch of other pastors would get together with Gary and he would just blow our minds for basically eight hours a day. You would seriously be sitting in a classroom eight hours for the whole day, and he would just be like, have you ever thought about this? And if you read this, it says this. And, and it just all throughout the whole entire Bible. For about three years, I did that. One day, we were looking at this Ephesians 4 passage where it says, equip the saints for the work of ministry. And he said, you know what? Time out. Just come outside with me for a second. So we all get up out of our seats, and we walk outside. And he takes us to um, the building. The building is right there at the very, if you drive down Hawthorne, it'll just end with Western Seminary, pretty much. It's just right there. And we go down to the building, and he's, and he's like, hey, look at this plaque that they dedicated to um, this school back in, like, the 60s. And uh, we read it. It says, yeah, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. You know, we're like, what a great motto for a seminary, right? And Gary says, I can't stand this sign. We're like, okay. And if you know Gary, I mean, he's, if you're listening to this, Gary, I love you. He's a little crazy. He's got some opinions. He's strong-willed. And he, he, he looked at it. He said, I hate this sign because of the comma. We're like, the comma? And what on the sign, it says, it says, equip the saints, comma, for the work of ministry. And you might think, well, what's the big deal about the comma? He said every day he would take, the sign's kind of a brownish granite. So every day he would take peanut butter and he would go and he would fill in the comma. Because, this is so important, because what that sign is saying is that the school equips who? The saints, the pastors. So that they can go do works of ministry, the church. But if you look at the text, that's not what it says. In fact, it says that there's people who are given different gifts, teaching, evangelism, an apostolic sort of uh, uh, gifting, who are designed to equip who? The saints, you. There's no comma there in the text because the church is designed to actually equip the saints for the work of ministry, which happens in the church, but also outside of those doors. See, with the comma, you could think that the saints, the pastors, the clergy, whatever, that they're the ones who do ministry while you receive it. But that's not what the text says. 
You see, the narrative of the Bible is about priests who lost their calling and their equipping and about a God who does everything to get that calling and equipping back on their lives. The the Garden of Eden was the first sanctuary, the first place set apart for God, and Adam and Eve were meant to cultivate it, to keep it, to actually embody these priestly duties, communication with God on behalf of the creation, and communication with the creation on behalf of God. But when the sanctuary was lost through Adam and Eve saying no to God, God began this trajectory of getting closer and closer to humanity, more and more approachable. So if you watch what happens after, if you've read through the Bible at all, it's fascinating. God, uh, they lose communion with God in the garden, and the next thing that we see is that God comes very, very close as a storm on a mountain, Mount Sinai. And it says that he's a fire by night and a cloud by day so that the Israelites could see and be in the presence of God. And so he gets just a little bit closer, kind of unapproachable, but, but there. And, and then we see that God has this idea, well, how about you have a temple in your midst where I can dwell in it 24-7? And he gets a little bit closer because the, the, the cloud thing and the fire thing wasn't enough. And, and then you see in the New Testament, he comes as Jesus as a human, to get even closer. And so he actually communicates with other humans, takes on what it means to be a human and lives in a human body. But even that's not enough. Because then he says, I need to be the spirit so that I can be in you. And he breathes on his disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, you become the dwelling. You become the temple. And this is what it means to be a saint. You have the privilege of being a host for the very presence of God. And this is really where our church's name even comes from. See, God had planned on restoring the priesthood at Sinai. Did you know that? You can go and look at it, but in Exodus chapter 19, he invites all of Israel to come up the mountain to commune with him, but instead they send Moses They will get afraid and say, no, Moses, you go up the mountain. And so the opportunity to become what they were in the garden is lost. But that same opportunity because of Jesus has been offered to us now. We get to be the people who choose to commune with God, host his presence, invite the Holy Spirit to receive back the calling and the equipping. What a privilege, right? And and so notice... As a saint, according to Ephesians 4, what are you all being equipped for? It's ministry, right? Um, You're being equipped to do ministry in the church and outside of the church. Now, what is ministry? Because we use this word all the time. They're in ministry. Well, everybody's in ministry who follows Jesus, but I think I get what you're saying. Um, What exactly is ministry? Well, according to Ephesians 4, what does it say? You're being equipped to do ministry so that the bride of Christ would reach maturity and unity. That's the stuff that happens in here. That's the stuff that happens in your homes. That's the stuff that happens over dinner with your friends. But then also, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Here's what it says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. 
We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had, no, who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So what is your job? Your job is to reconcile lost sons and daughters back to God that they might become what? His righteousness. That's, you, that's your ministry. The ministry of reconciliation that Christ had, it's now your ministry as well. Now, more on the specifics of that later. Um, a couple years ago, I went to this conference. It was a Catholic conference. It was fascinating. Um, lots of different speakers on a bunch of different topics. And one of them, really smart guy, head of philosophy at um, Boston College over on the East Coast, he gave this lecture on um, being a saint, I thought, oh, this will be really fascinating. Now, obviously, you realize that Catholics have a little bit of a different definition of what a saint is. They might include the comma than us Protestants. But it was fascinating. He said, um, he said, he got up and this is how he started his, his message. He said, it's very easy to become a Christian. It's very difficult to be a saint. And everybody's like, oh, yeah. Oh, that's good. And I thought, is that true? Is that true? See, I think that it would be difficult to be a saint if your identity rested on your actions instead of his. Then it would be difficult to be a saint. If your saint status depended upon how you behaved, then yeah, it might be difficult to be a saint. But the gospel says that your identity, your position with God, doesn't rest on your actions, but on his actions back in the first century on the cross and in the tomb. So, one of our primary messages as Saints Hill is identity. Equipping the saints, what? To know who they are in Christ. Why does, why, why, now, why does this matter so much? Why does identity matter so much? You're like, oh, he's a millennial. He's, he's got to talk about identity. It's just a hot topic for millennials. Is that why I'm talking about it? I, there's even, I, I, as I was writing this, I, I know there's the objection in the room that says, could it be possible that we might make a mistake in focusing on identity, what's been done for us, instead of just saying, hey, you know what? You got saved. Get out there and start doing some ministry. Like, isn't that the problem these days? Is that the church just isn't being like Jesus in the world? Well, for us to actually think those thoughts is to ignore the fact that Jesus' understanding of who he was, what his identity is, it fueled his ministry. Because to be human means that you're value-driven. And when Jesus became human, he became value-driven. Here's what I mean. Um, wherever you find ultimate value in your life, that becomes your God. Wherever you find ultimate value, that becomes your decision-making counsel, if you will. I, um, I think there's no better example of this uh, dynamic than high school. How many of you guys went through high school? Maybe some of you are in high school. Yeah, high school is a little bit rough sometimes. When I was in high school, um, I, the, the people who I served, the people who were my God, were my peers, and I would actually venture to say that most people, that's the case for them when they're in high school. I remember thinking before I, I, I got dressed for the day and went to school, I would be picking out my clothes thinking in my mind, what would this person think about this? What would that person think about this? What would that person think about what I'm about to wear? I had an imaginary counsel in my brain, in my mind, that I had to check before I made any action. 
Or even, you know, have you ever, you, you guys have probably had this happen. You make a joke and nobody laughs in high school and you're like, crap, what did I just say? You know? And it's like, so then afterwards you go, oh, maybe I can't say that. And you begin to learn what, what does the council want? Wherever you find your value, there you have made your judge. Where you find your ultimate value, that is where you're going to receive information about who you are. And the way that you see yourself, that you understand yourself, will impact what you do significantly. You, you see, we constantly as humans have this self-talk going on in our heads. Maybe it's just, it's probably not just me, it's you too. And, and when, you, when you go to make a decision, you, you're, you're constantly thinking through things and you're sorting through, really, your emotions, you're sorting through the experiences that you're having. And, and it's in this self-talk that we have a lot of voices from our past and from our present that jump in to help us fill in the gaps, and they end up making identity statements over us. And, and so let's say that you have a new job opportunity come up, and there's this, this, this voice that's like, oh, don't, don't try that. Remember what happened last time? And you're like, oh, yeah, I do remember what happened last time. Gosh, I, yeah, I guess I'm not very good at doing new things. Maybe I'll just stick with this. Whoa, an identity thought popped into your head and it led to you taking a specific action. Or, or, or maybe there's a new relationship and you're like, I really like this person. I think there might be something uh, here. There might be some chemistry. Yeah, but I just, I suck at relationships. I remember what my dad said back when I was 14 years old that I, could just, I couldn't commit to anything and yeah, I probably can't. Our agreement with these claims, empower the claims. They don't just stay inside of your imagination, they change directly the sort of action that we take in the world. So, so who you are is shaped by what you believe that you are. Do you get that? Not, not too long ago, I was having uh, lunch with an old friend. We were connecting and, and we were talking, you know, we were talking about sin, like Christians do. So we're like talking about each other's life, like, how you doing? And, and, you know, going down through the list. And he says, yeah, dude, I just, I'm really struggling with this thing. And he's like, but I'm just, you know, I'm a sinner and I need to realize that and to just, you know, uh, bring that before God. And I looked at him, I was like, you're not a sinner, you're a saint. And he's like, uh, no, I'm not a, no, man, you don't know what I just, you don't know what I'm doing, you don't know what is my deal is, and, and all of that, I, I'm just, a, I'm a sinner, I've, I've just done wicked stuff, and I walked away, I, I couldn't convince him that he was a saint, I walked away from that conversation sad, because self-deprecation has been sanctified by the church as an attempt to increase God's glory in comparison with our state, um, I, I really like wine. My wife works at a winery with Becky, and uh, she brings home wine all the time. It's, it's great. We live in a great place to enjoy wine, if you're over 21, Fox students. And, or maybe not. Maybe you just can't have it at all. Okay, sorry. Wait till you graduate. Um, I'm sorry, Robin. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but, but think about this. You know, let's say that I go wine tasting, and, and, I, and I try the wine, and I'm like, oh, pfft. That's horrible. And the winemaker's like, that was me. I'm awesome. That yeah, because the, how bad the wine is shows how awesome I am. That doesn't make any sense. 
Or, or could you imagine, my dad's in the back, I played basketball growing up, could you imagine my dad going to my games and I like shoot and miss and he's like, that's right, I'm better, I'm awesome, yeah, he's not any good, I'm really great. It doesn't make sense, but that's how we approach our relationship with God. See, oftentimes what we think is when we go, our wickedness or our sin or whatever actually increases God's awesomeness, but that doesn't work. That's not how it actually is. In fact, it's the opposite. God is glorified by his kids being awesome. He designed you to rule and to reign. You saw it for yourself in Genesis 1.27. He designed you. He said, all authority has been given to me. Now I'm giving it to you. But in an attempt for us to not get puffed up in pride, we've adopted false humility and called it virtue. It's not virtue. It's, it's calling God a liar. It's saying you made a mistake. He doesn't make mistakes. i got to preach if you guys are going like, to get this into your heads. I need a little feedback here. You see, the problem with this style of discipleship, focusing on what's wrong with you, it's not only that you become what you focus on, that's, which is very problematic for this way of thinking, but more importantly, it simply wasn't how Jesus did discipleship. If anything, people got around Jesus and they got a bigger vision for what their life could be, not a smaller one. They didn't get around him and go like, you're right, we suck. They got around him and they're like, hey, so I was thinking you should call some fire down on those people because they totally just insulted us. <laughs> You're like, whoa, maybe not, but wow, you've really owned the idea of authority being given from Jesus to you. That's amazing. See, Jesus isn't afraid to give you power and allow things to come to the surface that need to be removed. But oftentimes in our families and our churches, we're afraid to give people authority or say, hey, God's actually made you for a purpose to do amazing things because we think, well, if they believe that, then what kind of, they might do some bad stuff. The church is to be the place where we clean up the mess, not hide it. So if we're going to actually be the church that cleans up the mess, then we have to be the church that empowers. That wasn't in here. Okay. <laughs> The other problem with that way of thinking is that isn't how the Bible talks about you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, again, it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. When you come in, okay, how many of you guys understand this idea of being in Christ? It is technical theological language for Paul. At one point in your life, you were what? In sin. You were an enemy with God, but at another, when you came to Christ and you said, I want what you did on the cross to count for me, you crossed a line that you can't cross back. You got in Christ, you became a saint, and you got completely recreated. Your old self is dead. Don't go back to it. Christ killed it. But unfortunately, many of us treat our old self like something that we can go back to and try on again if we please. See, not understanding that to view our lives apart from the blood of Jesus is to say that the cross and resurrection didn't matter. It's sort of like this. I've used this example before, but I love it. Um, I've bought and sold several cars on Craigslist. It never tends to go well for me. My wife is like, no more Craigslist cars. I'm like, okay, no, well, we'll go to a dealership. But um, let's say that I were to sell my car on Craigslist. And I, I sold it to this person 
And uh, we connected, we chatted a little bit. Oh, you live over there? Oh, I live over here. Oh, that's not far away. Oh, very cool. Well, I hope you enjoy the car. I sell it to him. Now, a few months later, I'm kind of going through my house, and I come across one of the keys to that car that I forgot to give that person. And I go, oh, wow. All the times that, that Emily and I had driving that car around, those are good times. You know what? I know where that guy lives. I got the key. So I actually think I'm going to go over there and I'll just take it for a spin. Do you know what that's called? That's called theft. (laughs) That's called stealing. But many of us, Jesus purchased our, our, our lives and he killed our old self. But we treat it like that. We're like, oh, but no, that's just who I am. I'm just going to take it for a spin. It's called stealing from God. There's so much more to say on this. I'm passionate about this subject, but for now, just this quote. We are Christians. It is not in our nature to do wrong. Our very nature has been changed. Now we are actually saints. Righteousness is a part of the new nature, and it is natural for us to glorify God. Our old man is buried. We need to stop visiting our tombs and talking to our old dead man. We are a new creation. We can choose to sin, but it's below our nature to act like that now. When we agree with God, we step into the power of truth and the momentum of the cross. So we're equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ. And secondly, to walk in freedom through the truth. Now, this role of belief, I got into it a little bit in that last point, but this role of belief... Uh, in the life of a believer, cannot be overstated. We're literally called believers. So that means we believe something. I was in chapters the other day. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, there was this book on a table, and it, I, it caught my eye. I thought, oh, that's kind of an interesting book. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But I go and I look at the book, and on the back of it, it says, the core of the Christian faith is to doubt. And I was like, no, it's not. Like, it's not that you won't have doubts. It's not that there aren't doubts, but that's not the core of our... The core of our faith is to believe what Jesus did for us. You know, it says in John eleven twenty five 25, that if you believe in Jesus, you get life. Not this passage, but another one off the top of my head. You, you get life, okay? That's what it says. You believe and you get life. Very powerful. Now, why does belief matter so, you know, so much? Well, Jesus said this. You can, Connor, you're good. Put that slide up. <laughs> it says, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, now this is just a fascinating text, first off, because one of the primary pursuits of humanity is the truth. I think that Pilate really summed up most people's angst when he asked Jesus, what is truth? Some of you in college right now, you're asking that question, what is truth? Well, um, the word for truth in Greek is aletheia. Can you say that with me? Aletheia. Um, And it's used 109 times uh, in the New Testament. And what it means is it means truth. The definition is truthfulness as it corresponds to reality. So think about that. Truth. It's truthfulness as it corresponds to what's real, to reality. So if you think about it, another way that you could read what Jesus just said is 
you will know reality, and reality will set you free. Um, I think that there's no better dynamic of believing what's real than the life of Abraham. Now, many of you guys know the story of Abraham. He was childless. Uh, He was promised to have a kid in his old age, and he had a choice to believe. Romans chapter 4 says this. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, hang on for a second. Have you... Normally, you're like, what does it take to be righteous? You're like, uh, reading the Bible a lot, serving a lot, um, volunteering my time at like a homeless shelter. Maybe those are some righteous activities. But, but the definition of righteousness, the first time we even see it in the Bible, all the way back in Genesis, is this. What does, no, 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 no. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. His belief equaled righteousness in his life. Fascinating. Now, next slide. It goes on. It says this. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet, He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. Do you see what belief did? It became the seedbed for God's promise to take root. I like to think of Abraham as having two different realities at play. Reality one and reality two. Reality one is the way that things have always been. I, I even probably when I said that, you'll, you'll believe reality and reality will set you free. You're like, wow, believe this reality and I'm supposed to get free from it? Yeah, that's reality one. See, Abraham had this reality in his life. He's as good as dead. Her womb is as good as dead. <laughs> Jeez, don't say that to your wife. Your womb's as good as dead. Especially, Don't do that. Um, but he knew that, and it said that he actually he considered all of that, and yet he didn't waver through unbelief. Because God comes to him, and he says, yeah, that's reality one, but there's a different reality, and it's my promise. It's reality two. And if you believe, re- whichever reality you believe is the reality that you're going to get. Says it right there. His belief, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. So here's the connection for us God has made promises about our standing with Him, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, about what He believes we will do in this world. You're going to do even greater things than me. And we are faced with the same decision that Abraham faced. Which reality are you going to believe in? Are you going to believe in the reality of, I've always been useless, and I've never done anything great in my life, and my whole family lineage, they've they've never succeeded at anything? That's reality one. It's not what he says is true about you. Which reality are you going to empower? See, remember, Jesus says you'll know reality, and reality will set you free. So if you aren't free by Jesus' standards, you've not believed the correct reality. So where do you need to believe him again? What place have you yet to say yes and amen to God? 
The good news is this. You are just a yes away at any time from freedom. Just one yes away from freedom. So we're equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, walk in freedom through the truth, believing the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. The whole world, really? Saints Hill Church in Newburgh, you're going to change the whole world? Um, Is that just language that a church uses to sound like they're on the right track? It's like we ran out of words. We're like, we need to make this sound better. Change the whole world. Um, No. That's, That's not the case for us. See, we actually believe that when you take ownership for your world, you end up changing the whole world. And then if each believer took ownership for their world, a lot would happen. So two thoughts to end. You want to see the world change? First thought is this, be you. Be you. Um, Here's what I mean. I don't mean your truth or my truth or anything like that. No, no, no. Be you in Christ. My wife and I uh, were fortunate enough to, um, we're moving to Newburgh. We just bought a house over um, on just the south side of 99. It's an old house. It's from the 1940s. And uh, it looks like it had nothing really changed very much from the 1940s to now. And so we thought, we'll do a light remodel. We'll do some paint and uh, maybe we'll tile a backsplash. Next thing you know, Andrew Fleming, he's somewhere around here. He's my good buddy. He's over there and we're tearing out the bathroom floor and we're like, there's the crawl space, you know? So it's increased in the remodel a little bit. We're like, yeah, we'll get in in a couple weeks. Now we're like, it'd be awesome to be in by Christmas. So anyway, we're going through this whole house, and the guy who lived there before us, Verl, if you're listening, um, he was obsessed with the weather. So every single window had a thermometer attached to it, like every window. Thermometers everywhere. It's like... Dude, the iPhone would have saved you like 10 thermometers, bro. Um, every place has a thermometer. And we, we kept on, we saw a couple, and we're like, oh, there's a couple, th- he has two thermometers in his house? What? Who needs two thermometers? And then we're like, there's another one. We have a, a pile of thermometers. What our house does not have is a thermostat, Okay. Now, you guys know, because you know the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. A thermometer just tells you what the temperature is. It's kind of useless. Uh, But a thermostat, it's connected to the central heating and cooling of a house, and it has the ability to set the temperature of the house and keep it there. It's amazing. Modern technology. It's like, wow, it's awesome. Um, What it can do is you can say, okay, I want this room to be 70 degrees, and if it gets really hot outside, the cooling kicks on. It says, no, we're not going to be 71 or even 74. No, we're going to be 70 degrees in here. Or if it gets really cold out, it's like, oh, we need to bring the heat back up. It's just this brilliant piece of technology that we lack in our house. It's okay. Make a fire. Um, (laughs) You, as a follower of Jesus, were designed to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. (laughs) You're like, what? Um, You were designed to not walk into a space and just reflect what's going on in the space. You were designed to walk into a space, into a room of people, and to change the spiritual temperature of that room. So that when you have that group of friends over, they go, oh, there's just something on that person. That they just exude joy, and all of a sudden, there's this joy in this room. You were designed to change the world through your very presence because you carry with you the presence of God. 
Like we talked about last week, people who are in Christ are a taste of what is to come for the rest of humanity. And Jesus calls us salt, right? We're to enhance the world. Because to know who you are in Christ and to walk in freedom through the truth, that's good for you, but it gives a vision to others about who they could become with the life that Jesus offers them. You become a signpost pointing towards what people could become when you believe who you are in Christ and walk in freedom through the truth. So first, be you. You want to make disciples who change the world? Just be you in Christ. But secondly, get a vision for the person in front of you. How many of you guys understand there are people all over Newburgh and the Willamette Valley right now who are wondering if they know anyone who has more purpose and more hope than they have? See, if we're going to see the world change, then we start with the person in front of us. And if we're going to start with the person in front of us, then we're going to have to get get God's vision for that person. We're going to have to get God's word for that person. I can't, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because anybody who comes into Christ is a new creation, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh or according to the world. What does that mean? We don't regard people according to their actions or what's been said about them or how I know them in my life. We regard people according to what has God said to be true about this person. When I got alone with God, what was he speaking over that person? Okay, great. I'm going to position myself to speak the same thing. So, so think about this. Have you gotten the word of the Lord for that person that you're thinking of right now? You want to see the world change? Start with the person in front of you. Have you actually taken the time to get alone with God and said, what do you say about this person? What do you think about this person? Oftentimes, if you do this, this will lead to you having bigger dreams for that person than sometimes even they will have for themselves. This is how Jesus changed the world. This is, I'm not making this up. Jesus picked 12 guys, and he got a bigger vision for their lives than they had for themselves. And then he positioned himself to speak that over them and empower them to function in that. See, do you guys realize that when sin, it says in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I could have just preached on 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that when sin reigned in your life, when you were not in Christ... That it separated you from God, that was bad enough, but it also taught you about what is possible in your life. You understand that if sin reigns, then you're a slave to sin. Do you know that? You're either in Christ and you're a slave to righteousness, friend with God, or you're not in Christ and you're a slave to sin. And a slave, if you're a slave, you have an inability to dream for yourself because there's always a ceiling over your potential or bars over your potential. And here is the problem. If much of the world, and yes, much of Newburgh, is bound up in slavery to sin, then they have yet to dream the dreams that God has for them. They probably don't have a vision for what they could be in Christ. So here's where you come in. As someone who knows who they are in Christ, walks in freedom through believing the truth and all of the actions that stem from those realities, it is your job to have the dream and to have the vision for them. That's how you change the world. Now you might be sitting here and you're like, that's your plan for discipleship? What about curriculums? What about one-on-one meetings? There's no plan. You don't have a plan for discipleship? 
look, all of those very, very good things will come from you having a vision for the person in front of you and who they could be in Christ. But if you lack the dream, not only for yourself, but for the person in front of you, often discipleship will be boiled down to a list of do nots instead of becomes. So right now, who comes to mind? Who's in front of you? Um, for, For you parents, do you have a bigger vision for your kids than they have for themselves? Have you asked God, what are you saying about this particular kid so that I can then position myself to speak that word over them for their entire life? See, we lead people into righteousness through encouragement because it's his kindness that leads us to repentance and to change our mind about him. But most often, we treat our kids and we treat uh, the people that we work alongside through control instead of freedom because we're afraid of what they might become if you don't tell them what not to do. It's fine to tell them what not to do, but are you telling them who they are? It might be a little bit more important. What about your spouse? Have you, have you actually a bigger dream for your spouse than they have for themselves? You're like, you're like, babe, I went yesterday and I got alone with God and I asked him what he was saying about you. And so I just want to share this with you. This verse came to mind. This thought came to mind. And, I, and I'm just going to do my best to speak that over you every day. I know that my wife, she has a bigger vision for me than I even have for my, myself. And I think I might even have a bigger vision for her than she, than she has for herself. What about your roommate? This is where it's really hard. What about your roommate? Roomies. You guys are too early in roomies for this year to really have had too much tension. But roomies are hard. Have you asked God what he's saying about them? And then positioned yourself to speak that over them. You guys understand that this is what it means to be a Christian. I'm so filled up with what God has done for me that it overflows and starts to change the people around me. Because Jesus said, I won't just fill you, but I will make rivers of living water flow out of you. So our aim, my aim, what I pray for, what I think about all week is how to equip you to know who you are in Christ, to walk in freedom, in the truth, and to change your world. That's not the whole world, just what's in your world. What position have you given, been given by God? Let's stand together as we end. Um, one of the things that uh, we like to do around here is we like to write declarations. It's kind of unique. It's different maybe for some of you. But um, the reason why we read declarations of the truth over ourselves, it's not self-serving. It's not like positive thinking or self-talk or anything like that. But we like to put the truth that we just experienced from the scripture into our own language and then to declare it out over ourselves as a prophetic sign of saying, God, we're in for that transformation. We want that to happen in our lives. So let's all read this out over yourself. If you even want, just put your hand over your heart. Speak to your soul. Speak to your heart. Thank you, Jesus, for what your sacrifice means. I know that you became sin so that I could become righteousness. I am a saint, and I am being equipped to serve so that the church may be built up. I'm created to change the world, nothing less. I'm a child of God, and nothing less. And I know that I am approved of without needing anyone else's approval. I will see my life make a difference in the lives of those around me, and I will use my position to tell the truth that brings freedom. Let me pray for you guys. If you want to put your hands out, just receive this. 
Father, thanks for this new church. Thanks for these people. Thanks for what you're doing in their lives and how you're equipping them to do ministry in this body and outside of it. I commission them in the name of the Lord to have bigger dreams for themselves than they've had before by believing what their true identity is and to have bigger dreams for their friends and family and the people that they know than they've ever had before. In Jesus' name, amen.